0: ideas, inspiration, innovation. This is The Game Changer. And now here's your host, Chickie Fitzgerald.
1: Good afternoon. It's Chickie Fitzgerald. It's Friday, November 20th, 2015. I can't believe we are almost at Thanksgiving. And so we have got a Perfect topic uh, for the week before Thanksgiving, and the book that we're going to be talking about is a book called "Cooking Up a Business," and uh, the author is Rachel Hofstetter. And I met Rachel actually through her tech company, and that company is called Gesterly. Rachel, welcome.
0: Thank you. So glad to be here.
1: So you had some very exciting news today about that business. Can can you give us a little tidbit?
0: Definitely. So Guest Early, which is a company that lets you make a really easy directory for events like weddings or conferences or reunions and feature everybody who's there, is being acquired by a company called Chatbooks, which lets you automatically make photo books straight from your phone, have them delivered via ongoing subscription, super easy, Life changing for me, and so very exciting news all around is that yes, we just happened to hop on the phone today, and I said, "It's been a very crazy day. It went live today, so I could finally talk about it, which is all." Oh,
1: fun. that is so wonderful! And you and your husband started uh, started that company, and had you written the book before that?
0: I had. So actually, how it all came about is, I was a food editor at Oprah Magazine and would meet with all these amazing food entrepreneurs all the time, try their delicious foods, their donuts, their cookies, whatever they were cooking up. And, of course, their food was delicious. But one of the things I really loved were their stories. And they'd tell me how they got started making it at their kitchen table and you know, trying to stop by their local Whole Foods and have somebody try it, whatever that is. And then eventually they grew it into the business. And maybe they were early stage and it was brand new or they'd already grown it into a multimillion-dollar business. I loved those stories. And so how it came about is I wrote a story in Oprah Magazine about a few of these food entrepreneurs. And it ended up being absurdly, absurdly popular and turned into a book deal with Penguin. And so all of a sudden, I, who had thought of myself as a food person, I was a food editor, was writing a business book. And I went into the book completely into food. And by the time I ended, I was like, wow, I am obsessed with entrepreneurship. This is amazing. And at the same time, my husband and I got married, and everybody was coming in from all over the country. And we really wanted our friends and family to connect and get to know each other. And so we said, hey, what if we make a little booklet with, fun pictures and names and everything about that, about everybody who's here. And so we did, and it was a hit, and we thought that was kind of it, though. Like, great, we did something cool for our wedding. But it grew into much more than that, and we started making it for friends of friends, and then companies like Procter & Gamble started calling and wanted to do it for their events. And so it grew into its own thing, and it was very organic, which kind of leads me to my very first business tip, which is, Run with something that people are asking you for already. That's the easiest thing in the world to sell is that thing that people are already obsessed with.
1: Absolutely. Well, so again, the the, the book is called Cooking Up a Business, and the subtitle is Lessons from Food Lovers Who Turn Their Passion into a Career and How You Can Too. And it's funny because, and, and I was trying to remember the name of the book before we started, but there's a business book about being an entrepreneur. And you, you may know of this book or it may come to me as we're talking. But the funny thing about this business book and, and how you need to really think about how you formulate the business, he used the story of somebody who made these amazing pies. And everybody kept saying to her, you need to own, open a pie shop. And as it turned out, she learned uh, through that experience that it was way harder than she thought because she wasn't a salesperson or an operations person or all those things. So I can't wait to hear some of these stories from the book. And Are do you, you know talking, what book I'm talking about?
0: I'm going to guess, The E-Myth for 100? Yes,
1: yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Thank you for remembering that.
0: <laughs> yes, no, exactly. I, I read that book after I bought mine. like... Food is the perfect vehicle to talk about so many business concepts because we can all understand it. I like to say that food businesses are almost like the gateway drug for entrepreneurship because you don't need a lot to start. You don't need a lot of money. You don't need a lot of infrastructure. You don't even need a lot of fancy skills like coding, for example, or things like that. <laughs> you can just take your take your idea, take a recipe you love, bake it, make it, and try it. And it, you know, it's kind of it's harder to make it a huge hit, but it's very easy to get started. So it's definitely a gateway drug.
1: <laughs> well and, and you know, anybody who's watched Shark Tank knows that, you know, about, I don't know, maybe maybe an eighth of the entrepreneurs that come on are food entrepreneurs, which really surprised me because yeah. you know, it's such a competitive business. So let's let's start just at the beginning of your book. So you you talk Uh, in your introduction about, so, you want to sell your famous spaghetti sauce. Tell us what was behind that.
0: Well, I think what it was, and when I was writing the book, so many people have something in the back of your head, going back to the gateway drug, right? We all, right now, if you thought about it, have something you're amazing at making and people love. So you're like, yeah, I should do something with that. I should sell that. And that's really what it comes down to. You play with it, you think, hey, you know, this job is not going so fun or what would it be like to go out there and do something I really care about because we're so passionate about food. And so it's really saying, hey, if you have something in the back of your head, come along, learn from these entrepreneurs who have done it, and see how you might want to play it out and try it for yourself.
1: Right, right. So... As you decided who you were going to interview for the book, were the, many of these people that you had met, uh, you know, you, you talked about seeing all of mm-hmm. these stories about food in your previous job.
0: Yes. So as a food editor, Oprah, I met with you know, at least a couple of food entrepreneurs every single day. And so when I went out to pick who I wanted to feature in the book, I wanted people who had great stories first and foremost. I um, wanted some diversity across the country and their types of products and things like that. But what I really wanted is people who had kind of started from nothing in the near past. You know, I didn't want people who started their business 20 years ago. I wanted people who had started in the last five to eight years and then really turned it into something substantial. And so that was my criteria, was who they had a great story who had built something substantial.
1: The first chapter of the book talks about the power of hustle and and hustle being a mission statement and getting back to your roots. And the, this, uh, I don't know if this is the company name, is it Love Grown Foods is yes. the company mm-hmm. name? Yes. Tell us about that.
0: So Alex and Maddie from Love Grown are one of my favorite stories ever. They actually started Love Grown while they were still in college. And they had no money. They were literally making this stuff and doing it in their college dorm rooms. And yet, I think the overarching lesson from them is, yes, you can hustle your way to success. By the way, I think they're in almost every grocery store in the United States at this point. Mm. But more than that is they knew from the beginning that they were going to be a big consumer brand. And so they never let the fact that they were... You know, young or didn't have a lot of money or were inexperienced. You know, people would laugh at them when they went into buyer meetings, but they never let that be an excuse for not performing at the absolute highest level. And I love that. I think that's the best lesson you can take from that: is whatever stage you start at, act like you're at the stage you want to end at.
1: Mm. What a what a great idea. So so they conquered the cereal aisle. Exactly. And and she took her mother's granola, and, and is that the, still the core product?
0: You know what? They've now expanded into many, many breakfast and snack offerings, um, including lots of different breakfast cereals and oat products and things like that. My favorite that they've come out with since the book was written is bean-based cereal, so you can get some of that nutrition from beans in your cereal.
1: Mm. Wow. I'll have to keep my eye out. So the next one is uh, about an organics uh, company, which, again, is, has gotten to be a very, very competitive space. And this chapter talks about designing a sellable, profitable product. And how do you know at the outset, and, and how do you make it into something sellable if if it's just a dream? I think,
0: so we're talking about Kapali Organics here, I think, I think that's what we're talking about, and- It's really at the beginning, you're like, hey, here's this thing, awesome. And as you so often find in any business, you have to sell something that people actually want to buy. And so what Zach learned in this story is like he had this great thing, he's like banana vinegar, nobody's ever heard of it. It's going to be like the next balsamic vinegar. And yet what happened is that nobody really cared about banana vinegar. (laughs) <laughs> but they did start – I know, right? You're like, yeah, I, I don't care about banana vinegar. But what they did start to care about was some of these other cool things he was bringing back from Costa Rica, and so ultimately shifted his business strategy to that. And so the biggest lesson takeaway from there is, you know what, you might think you have the world's best idea. Don't go spend a ton of money or a ton of time on it until you know that people actually want to buy it.
1: mm. Now, they also had the social mission side of things. And, and this, you know, again, organics is a, is a very, very crowded space now. And, and some are truly uh, social mission focused and some aren't. Some are just slapping the name on it because it sounds like a good thing that will make products sell. So what was it about their social mission? Did it have to do with Costa Rica?
0: You know, it had to do with, Giving farmers a you know a living lifestyle wage, and so selling products in the U.S. in a way that wasn't detrimental to the people who are actually growing the products in different countries, because how the whole thing started, in Zach was in Costa Rica and saw fields of banana being sprayed with pesticides. and you know, okay, you know, we we hear about that. But then he saw that the nearby school was also being sprayed with pesticides. Mm. And so it's like, wow, like just so we can have a 19-cent banana in our breakfast area in the United States, these children are dying down here. So that was what really what drove him is making the whole system safe for the people who are actually doing the growing of the food.
1: Mm-hmm. You know the next one is a product called Tasty and this is about both creating and evolving a brand. And and so what are the kickers that that cause you to know you need to evolve beyond the original dream?
0: So Tasty Brands started making organic baby food. Yeah. You know, amazing. People loved it. They got a lot of press. Celebrities really liked it. Except they didn't have any distribution. You could really only get it two places in LA and Nobody was really – and then when they did get it, it was hard because it had to be cold. It shipped and everything like that. And so they had thought that this was their, like, live-all product. This is why they had started the company, for this baby food. But it turned out it was really hard to get that in distribution. Luckily, they created this brand, and the brand wasn't a baby food brand. The brand was a food brand. And so they were able to shift into a different product and still keep that great brand following I think the lesson there is the importance of a getting a brand that is also large enough that you could put different things under it, move and shift and things like that, but also to be really willing to say like, hey, sure, we got into this because of this, but maybe this thing over here is going to be a way better thing in the end for us. So being really open to changing.
1: Mm. You know, Rachel, you uh, one of the things I love about the book is the practical tips that you weave into the stories. And so in this chapter, you weave in something called the Legal Commandments for Startups. And you share some some things about that. And then also the seven-step plan to do-it-yourself public relations. So can you, can you tell us how – did those things relate directly back to Tasty or was it just as you were talking about evolving a brand, whether those things just seemed like a logical fit at that point in the book?
0: Yeah, so those sections you're referring to are just bonus things. They were actually related. They're throughout the whole book. And they're just ways of getting in even more expert material. And so they're actually completely throughout the book. I think there's at least 10 or 20 of them placed it. Uh, but, yeah, pretty much at random, just extra little fun things that you can learn and take a side project on.
1: Well, we definitely need it. And, I, you know, I, I've just been going through my own – well, it's not really a startup because the company's been around for 10 years, but uh, a new product launch and bringing on new advisors. And and so th- those legal commandments for startups would have been really, really useful a couple of months ago. Yeah. <laughs> the next chapter talks about Secrets of food safety and scale, and you know, again, this one hits me so much because, as you know, I'm I'm just a Shark Tank fanatic, and they're they're always talking about this, about how do you scale, and and just the whole problem that you talked about with the Tasty Baby food as well, of of getting your business to scale in the case of food, absolutely this is all about distribution. Mm-hmm. So. Which
0: company are we talking about again here? I think
1: it's, I don't know how you pronounce it, it Evil?
0: Yeah, Evil, which has now actually been bought by Boulder Food Company as well. So this is so fun because Phil literally was a rock climber. He wanted to go rock climbing. He wanted something he could sell to make a few bucks, and he started making burritos and taking them to people and being like, hey, buy my burritos, you know, two bucks each. It was as simple as that. And, you know, along the way, he started finding people who wanted to buy his burritos and said, hey, you know, I would love to keep selling you to see So he'd go to Costco and buy all these supplies and, you know, started making them in a kitchen and then somebody told him, oh, you can't make them in your own kitchen, you have to make them in a commercial kitchen, so he made them in a commercial kitchen. And the thing is that this business just started to take off, from Phil driving burritos around to supermarkets placing orders and more and more than that. And what was really interesting is you know burritos usually have meat in them and it turns out that meat is very hard to scale because as you might guess there's so many regulations around it right like nobody wants to have meat that makes them sick and that sounds horrible right so even though he was able to scale it if Mm. you were thinking about starting a food business from scratch i have to say i would probably tell you to not do meat or definitely not do meat that's being you know, wholesale, being sold to other people to resell. And they eventually worked through it, but it's like from the very beginning, what can you do now at this level that you can also do when you're selling, you know, a million dollars worth a year and a $100 million worth a year? And so more as you start to think of any business, it's like, what is it going to look like now? What is it going to look like in 10 years?
1: Well, and that's so important and and you get into this in the next chapter when you talk about navigating the world of manufacturing because nearly all of these players, you know, at least at some point in time for some length of time, actually did work out of their own kitchens and then maybe they went and rented professional kitchen space from someone else. But Mm -hmm. when it came to that point of scaling, you've got to be able to figure out who can uh, do that professional level mm-hmm. of food safety and scale and, and perhaps also help on distribution. Definitely. So the next one is about Mary's Gone Crackers.
0: Oh, Mary. So Mary, uh, who is lovely, by the way, and Mary grew up her whole life having stomach issues, and health issues, and nobody really ever knew what it was. And it might feel so strange to us now when we hear gluten-free, gluten-free, gluten-free every day. But when she was diagnosed with it finally in around 1995, still nobody had ever heard of it. Right, exactly. I know. And there was nothing she could buy at the supermarket. Like, we forget how it was not a thing in any way, shape, or form. And so, but she was so happy because she finally knew, like, what was giving her all these stomach issues and what she could do to solve that. And so she started making these crackers for herself, essentially out of, you know, seeds and things like that. Making them, baking them, taking them to restaurants, taking them dinners with friends, and just like the best business thing ever. When somebody says, "Hey, these are amazing," over and over, you hear, "Wow, you should make these. You should make these." And that's really where Mary's story comes from. Is she eventually said, "Sure, let's try them." And They just completely coincided with the whole rise of gluten-free. Like, when they first started, there were maybe 400 stores in the country that would take anything gluten-free, and that was, you know, nobody even knew it. And so there was so much education. They would send these out to, exactly, send out to buyers, and eventually they said, you know what, let's just talk about the fact that these are delicious, not that they're even gluten-free. Like, let's just say they're delicious. And that's what really won it for them. But that is a company that expanded so fast and so quickly and really was there, you know, talk about right time, right moment, leading a whole change.
1: Right, right. Well, and, you know, even though it is much more mainstream now, I, just last week I was in Publix, which is our, our local grocery store chain here in Florida uh, in the southeast. And I was in the health you know the the health food area of the store asking for gluten-free soy sauce and it just seemed inconceivable to, inconceivable to me that they wouldn't have it because they carry so much else and then i finally just went back in the regular uh oriental food asian food Area And there, there it was, right, amidst the regular stuff. So, you know, even in the distribution channels at, at the retail level, they still haven't figured that out of, you know, where things actually belong mm-hmm. and, and where are people going to look for it. And, and eventually, hopefully, it will all just be integrated.
0: Yeah, 100% crazy to see the shift.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the next story is about Justin's Nut Butters and the power of equity.
0: Oh, Justin, okay. So, Justin is the best because he started literally just making these nut butters. He was a vegetarian. He was doing all these active things in Colorado. And so, he started, you know, regular nut butters got kind of boring, He ate them all the time. So, he started whipping them up in his own food mixer at home, just being like, oh, I'll make my own peanut butter. And no idea he could do that. And he put them in jars, and he had 10 roommates, and he was straight out of college living with a bunch of guys. And... What happened is he'd you know, write his name on it, Justin, so his roommates wouldn't eat it, except they ate it anyway. <laughs> and uh, they would say, Hey, Justin, this is amazing. You're catching one theme throughout all of this. It's uh, when people keep telling you something's amazing, that might be a good time to go and do something. And so Justin said, Hey, you know what? Let me try selling it at the farmer's market. And I think the really cool story about Justin, Snow is he didn't have a lot of money, right? Like he did have a lot, and yet he said, you know what, one thing I do have is equity in this brand. People who want to come in and instead of you know, paying money to invest uh, and instead of us paying them for their work might be willing to take some equity exchange for some of that cash. And so, for example, he was able to get a really, really top-level design firm to do their branding very early on and did it again with marketing agencies, with distributors, with tons of things like that. And so great lesson there on, you know what, don't be afraid to give up equity sometimes to get what your brand needs to really grow
1: huge. Right, right. Yeah, that's a lesson I'm I'm struggling with even as we speak. So the the tip that you've got in between this chapter and the next one uh, is intriguing to me. Five mistakes everyone makes in a business plan.
0: I'm going to have to be honest, Kiki, I wrote the book three years ago. I don't remember that at all. <laughs> <laughs> so I can't even tell you. That
1: okay, there. no, but this is actually really great because Rachel, this means that they've got to go out and buy the book. <laughs> to hear about it.
0: exactly.
1: Perfect. So um, the next one, and and again, we were just talking about how how groceries, uh, you know, place things on shelves. And the next chapter is actually about how simple really wins on on the grocery uh, store shelf. And this is, uh, the company was Hint.
0: Yes, so Hint Water, which does flavored water without sugar, anything like that, uh, really found that, you know, at the end of the day, you have to be on the shelf and then people have to buy you off the shelf to really have a thriving business. And they want to do all these cool things could they have it like this Could they have their shelf life longer. But what really works in the end is having simple branding, simple flavors, right? Like you and I might be like, oh, pineapple, guava, that sounds amazing. But it turns out people really want strawberry, kiwi, <laughs> blueberry, um, you know, flavors that are very, very... Raspberry, I think, is the best seller. And that was a huge thing of just saying, hey, these flavors, even though they feel like even kid flavors, they're what we're going to sell. Uh, I think the other really interesting tidbit in this chapter is that the more shelf space you have, the more likely people are to buy, which sounds like, okay, of course, the more you have. But it's actually exponential. And it's because your product takes up so much space, that it becomes much more eye-catching and catches the consumer's attention. And so the more you have different SKUs, which are different products, and you can convince the store buyer that, yes, this is going to sell better if we have two feet of space versus one foot of space, the better.
1: Yeah, I I know how competitive that is. So, you know, it makes the next chapter all the more important, and, and that's about creating buzz. And uh, this particular chapter was about a company called Pop Chips. And, again, mm-hmm. talk about a crowded category. You know, the snack marketplace is, is just super saturated.
0: So Keith Belly of Pop Chips, who is a brilliant marketer, wanted to make something that, you know, wasn't a chip but wasn't health food. Where do you do it? How do you find that? And, of course, most of you today do know Pop Chips. You've heard of it. But in the beginning, nobody knew about Pop Chips. And they did this brilliant campaign where they went into New York City and they picked out influencers in all different fields. So not just like today we say, like, oh, you know, Kardashians are influencers. They picked out, you know, a thousand architects that were influential in their spheres and a thousand marketers and a thousand this. And they sent each one of them, somebody on their team knew that, and they'd send a note and they'd be like, hey, Rachel, Keith thought you would like this. And it would have pop chips in it. And that was, like, all well and good. Like, I remember receiving mine. But the genius of it is they then had a note that said, you know, share this with three friends who you think would also like their own snack pack. So you went online, you entered in the names, the addresses of your friends, and a few days later, they got a snack pack with the same invitation to share with more friends. And it got everybody buzzing so big. And so that simple idea, since I wrote about it in my book, I've now seen numerous companies take it and play with it, run it. But it's really that idea of, give somebody something for themselves and then also let them give it to other people.
1: Right, right. Well, it is brilliant. It is brilliant. And and when you look at what they would have had to spend to brand the company, you know, just going Mm -hmm. through normal branding processes, it was probably way cheaper.
0: Yes, 100%. Great Mm -hmm. point.
1: So the next one uh, is about the genius financial model. And this is uh, about a wine company, Cameron H- Hughes Wine. So what what was the genius in how they modeled their business?
0: So in the wine business, there are two things going on. There are people making very, very high-end wine and people making very, very low-end wine. And what Cameron Hughes knew was that to keep the price of high-end wine high, you can't have that much of it. You can't sell that much. And so what he knew happened, kind of being seeing the world, is that every year these high-end wine companies would throw away, literally, like, throw away, like, garbage, tons of amazing wine, because it would cheapen their brand if, you know, they released 10 billion cases of it. So what he went in and said, hey, what if we make our own brand name? It's not connected to any of these, you know, fancy brands. But we then go in and say, hey, we'll buy your excess wine from you, so they're going to make money, so you're going to throw it down the drain instead, and we'll take it, we'll market it under our, our brand. You know, We'll sign huge confidentiality agreements, things like that. And the wine you know, did the first one, went to Costco, they end up buying the first lot, and it's just simply genius. And even more than that, they had this great thing where they didn't have to buy from the wine company, you know, the vineyard, until Costco had already said, okay, we'll buy this one. And so they oh, never wow. had cash, in play, beautiful cash flow, because then they would go to the bank and say, hey, we have this purchase order from Costco, and can you fund it? And so they were able to move a lot very quickly without having any real cash in the bank.
1: Brilliant. That is just brilliant on so many levels. and I know. So the next one, and, and uh, I have been in the travel industry my whole life, and and luxury has always been a really uh, core part of the travel industry because, it you know, it just sets the product apart so easily. Actually, it's very easy to market luxury, and you talk here about a company that uh, came out with a luxury chocolate.
0: Oh, yes, the rose chocolate, and... Katrina is actually it was the oldest company in my book. They've been around for about 10 years when I wrote the book. But as we all think back, you know, 10, 15 years ago, there was really only one type of chocolate you would buy. It was straightforward chocolate. You know, it might feel homespun or something, but it wasn't fancy, and definitely wasn't crazy flavors or exotic or anything like that. And we forget now because that is so common. You know, we'll always see chocolate with bacon or chocolate with hibiscus flour or whatever it is <laughs> yes. so often that we forget that that didn't exist. And the person who invented that is Katrina from Rose Chocolate. She spent a year after culinary school traveling around the world and came home and just started making these crazy, crazy, crazy flavors um, inspired by her travels for friends. And to be honest, the first people, she took them to, She was working for Newman Markets on their catalog. And she took them into their office in Texas, and everybody hated them. They were like, oh, these are gross. Why would you put, you know, wasabi in chocolate? <laughs> Except, you know what? She's like, there's something here. And she kept doing it and made these beautiful chocolates, did it piece by piece, and is now literally, the, I, I want to say, like the godmother of everything fancy chocolate in the world. So, really fun story there of you know doing something a little bit crazy and just being super passionate about it,
1: so you talked at the very beginning of this interview about how writing this book actually <clears throat> gave you the the um the guts, I guess <laughs> is the best way to put it mm-hmm. to actually start your own business or or to give you that hunger uh, exactly. might might be the better way to put it so. What what are the top three things out of all of these interviews that you did um, that you feel now having your first uh, company that you've actually sold, which a lot of people never get to say that, right? What are the three things that you think really helped you uh, be prepared to do what you and your husband have done?
0: Well, I will say I thought I was prepared, and it turns out I was not.
1: But I think that's part of it is
0: going into business. Is its own crazy adventure. And I think the first thing is you have to kind of be prepared for that. Uh, for example, I've been doing something that I call the Year of Hustle, hashtag Year of Hustle if you follow me on Twitter, Rachel Hoffy, And it's one of those things where you do have to be prepared for a season of your life, whether that's you know two or three years, maybe even longer, where you won't have a normal life. Um, you won't be going to as many things. You won't see your friends you probably will not be as well-read as you used to be. And that's just a big part of it, saying for you know a set period of time, things are going to be intense. But I think the other two most important lessons are first, experiment. Everything is an experiment, and the faster you get something out there, the faster that you can learn from it and tweak and change and move forward. Right. But the second, or well, so I guess the third thing after, we've got hustle experiment. And this is the number one thing I would want to leave anybody with who's listening to this, which is start now. Start <laughs> this weekend. Go do it, whether you want to write a book or start a business or go on an adventure, whatever that is, start now. Because I traveled across the whole country for my book tour and I can't tell you the number of times people say, oh, I want to start a business. I like, Great, this weekend, just start. They're like, oh, I can't this weekend well, what about next weekend? Oh, well, I have something planned. Here's the thing. The only way it's ever going to happen is if you start. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be amazing. Just, like, put something out there. Even say on Facebook or something, hey, I'm starting this day. I'm doing this thing. Because starting is the hardest part. And once you get past that, you have a whole world of opportunities.
1: Well, Rachel, this has been really terrific. Again, the book is called Cooking Up a Business, Lessons from Food Lovers Who Turn Their Passion into a Career and How You Can Too. Rachel, I, just, I love the cover of the book. Uh, it, it's like a chalkboard, and you, uh, it, it's just beautifully designed. Did you have a hand in that?
0: All the team at Penguins, the amazing team there, did all sorts of great stuff with it.
1: Yeah, they are amazing. We we do a lot of interviews of their authors. So, Rachel, what's next for you? I mean, you probably haven't even had a chance to think about that yet. Uh so so now you've you've built this amazing company, somebody else found uh incredible value in it and uh you know, you you've done very well with your book. Uh you wrote that uh, back in December of 2013. What's next?
0: So, I'm actually going to go on and join Chaput their executive team, and get to lead marketing across all their Oh, grounds. wonderful. So, tons of fun right there.
1: Now, are they based in Salt Lake also?
0: They're based in Utah, yes. Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, excellent. Well, I hope uh, you and Lauren just have a wonderful weekend and, and that you Thank get a, you. a break Thank from you. some of those uh, sleepless nights that can happen as an entrepreneur and that you just really bask. In uh, in the success that you've created, well done.
0: Thank you so much,
1: Rachel. Uh, you mentioned a couple of times where where people could find you. I'd like for you to repeat that. Uh, so if people would like to follow you, find you, talk to you, how do they do that?
0: The probably easiest way is on Twitter, Rachel Hoffy, R A C H E L H O F F Y, and then on Instagram, same thing, just Rachel Hoffy one. And uh, those are probably the easiest.
1: Well, perfect. And uh, I, I love the quote that you put on your guest early site, if you obey all the rules, you miss all the fun. That's from Katherine Hepburn. So go out and have some fun this weekend, Rachel. And thank you again so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. For those who'd like to learn a little bit more about the Executive Girlfriends Group, just please go to executivegirlfriendsgroup.com. And we also have uh, both a public Facebook group, Executive Girlfriends Group, and then also our private group for our members. Thank you so much for joining us and have an amazing weekend.
0: You've been listening to The Game Changer. Ideas. Inspiration. Innovation with Chickie Fitzgerald.